0: Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, what we're doing in this third of these morning services, we're in New Year's, we are ushering out a calendar year and beginning a new one, transitioning from 2017 to 2018. We see a transition happening in this opening verse of this passage we can see how it relates and applies to life today. We want the words to count. We know that your truth matters. We want this pastor to step into the shadows and for you to shine brightly in these minutes together. So Father, in these moments together, it's our prayer that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds that you would shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. In R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, there's this incredible, powerful story that's told about a time in which four golfers were out on out on the golf course, Gerald Ford, then President of the United States, Jack Nicholas, Billy Graham, on a fourth, a leading golfer of the professional tour. Sprow writes the golfer was especially in awe of playing with Ford and Graham. He had played frequently with Nicholas before. After the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and asked, Hey, what was it like playing with the president and with Billy Graham? And the pro unleashed a torrent of cursing in a disgusted manner, said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he turned on his heel and stormed off, heading for the practice tee. His friend followed the angry pro to the practice tee, and the pro took out his driver and started to beat out balls in fury. His neck was crimson and it looked like steam was coming from his ears. His friend said nothing, sat on a bench and watched. And after a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent and he settled down. His friend said quietly, Was um, Billy a little rough on you out there? And the pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, No. He didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. Astonishing, Spro writes. Billy Graham had said not a word about God. Yet the pro had stormed away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to rush and ram religion down his throat. How do you explain this? It's not really difficult, you see. Billy Graham didn't have
1: to say a word. Because Billy Graham is so identified with God.
0: There's a sense where the holy has a way of making us well uncomfortable. But it's out of the holiness of God that is a sense of hopefulness is given humanity. And what I want to do now is to explore this passage together with you. Because this passage deals with a highly transitional period of time. Coming and going of people. And in the midst of the transition, something significant takes place where you and I are introduced into the Holy of Holies. We're going to explore two significant aspects here of God's holiness in times of transition, I want you to check them out with me. The first is found in verse one down through verse seven. This weekend, this time of transition. Start by reflecting with me now upon the holy nature of God. And you pick it up in verse one. And notice with me that you and I are told that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Stop right there. Let's camp on it for a minute. This is 740 B.C. King Uzziah has reigned for 52 years. If you and I were thinking politically, that would take us back in time to the Lyndon Johnson political era. This would have been a time of political stability for Judah. King Uzziah was known for a whole host of construction efforts. Furthermore, the military was efficient and effective, defending Judah and in particular addressing the issues of the threat of the Philistines in the region. But something's gone wrong. And in his latter years, King Uzziah has trespassed into the temple zone that was restricted for the priests. There was a natural line of division between prophet, priest, and king, a check and balance system. And it seems as though King Uzziah has trespassed. He's exerting his authority beyond the boundaries God had established. And so in the latter years of his political realm, we find God has positioned Uzziah in a separate house, away from the royal setting because Uzziah has been inflicted with leprosy. Interestingly, leprosy involved being separated. Separated from others. Holiness involves a sense of separation. A sense of separateness. There's irony here. It's in the year that King Isaiah died. There's a political vacancy here. People... Most people would not even be able to recall the prior leader politically of that time period. They've known a sense of normalcy and known a sense of stability, known a sense of security, now. But it's in the year that King Isaiah died, and now and now something of visual impact addresses the need of the hour. I saw the Lord. Now, you'll notice with me that Lord is with capital L, but after that, it's small O, small R, small D. Why? Well, that is the title, the title for God, not the name, the title. And the title carries with the idea of the sovereign one, Hebrew word Adonai. So in other words, King Isaiah for 52 years, has been sovereign, but the sovereign died, and now we've got a sovereign who lives. And though there was a political vacancy upon their throne in Judah, the throne is occupied in the cosmic kingdom of our God. Isaiah is choosing his words wisely, effectively, to arrest our attention at this point, there's a sovereign one on the throne. And if you're putting your faith and trust in the temporal rather than the eternal, this is what you get. Kings die. Political leaders come and political leaders go. <clears throat> Christmas gift. I opened it up. And the fire was glowing. Fireplace. I spout as I looked down upon the book. It's a book that I had been putting aside in my thoughts to read in 2018. It's entitled A Torch Kept Lit. It's a collection of the eulogies written by William Buckley. And William Buckley was second to none in the way in which he would recall the lives of significant people, particularly leaders globally as well as nationally. And in the introduction to the book, we're told that Buckley thought that we are inheritors of what he liked to call the patrimony, the corpus of objective truths that have been established. The first among these,
1: people die, God endures. The king dies, long live the king. In the
0: year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign
1: one, sitting where? Don't miss the irony. Upon a throne. This is the cosmic throne of the universe.
0: You read on, and you and I are told he is high and lifted up, unlike King Uzziah, who in his latter years was anything but. But furthermore, and capture again the historical irony of the moment, the train of his robe filled
1: not merely the throne room, the temple. Where did King Uzziah violate the will of God? The temple.
0: Where he trespassed and went in and did the work that was exclusively designed for priests. There was a check and balance system. He had violated the boundaries God had established. What is God doing at this point? He is reminding us that he is through the second member of the Trinity, prophet, priest, and king.
1: Only he. Meanwhile, you're on to verse two. And
0: in verse two, you and I are told that above him, above him stood the seraphim. The seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Now you say, Ger, I'm not too up to speed on seraphim. Uh, Help me here. Well, if we were singing in the classical sense of the word, the second stanza of Holy, 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 it would read, all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee. You say, now Gary, you've added a cherubim to go along with a seraphim. Let's, let's work this through. Okay. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 1, as well as in verse 10, you've got, you have got an angelic host working with God, but it's not the seraphim there, it's the cherubim. And what interests us is that they have two sets of wings.
1: The seraphim in verse 2 here, you see it on the screen, they've got three sets. What's the difference? The cherubim served under the throne, there was a platform.
0: Two would, of course, God their wings, the feet, two to fly. But they did not need two wings to cover their face. Why? Because they were safeguarded for looking upon the holiness of God by that platform beneath the throne. But notice where the
1: seraphim are positioned. Not below the throne, above the throne.
0: So they need an extra set of wings for the sake of covering the face, to cover the eyes, so they will not be overwhelmed with the sense of the holy brightness of this sovereign Adonai. So they had six, not four, six wings. So two he covered his face. Two covered his feet.
1: Two he flew. And then, one calls out to the other.
0: And they do this in antiphonal form, musically speaking, at this point. And as they do so, you will find not once, not twice, but three times, the seraphim, which means literally the burning ones, ironically, call out, holy, holy, holy. Holy. Now, the word holy carries with the idea of distinct, separate, unique. Furthermore, notice with me that it doesn't read love, love, love. Nor do they call out power, 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 which will be perfectly consistent, you see, with one who is positioned on the throne. Holiness carries with it the sum total, the sum distinctive summary of the essence and the totality of who God is. All of his attributes are holy. His wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, his truth. You see. All is distinguished by holiness. Notice that this is in triplicate. Repetition is God's means of getting our attention. And so in antiphonal form, we find here the holy nature of God being emphasized where? In this throne room with the robe extending where? Throughout the temple. And then you and I are informed of this. The whole earth is full of his glory. It doesn't read all of Judah. Is full of his glory. It doesn't read, the throne room is full of his glory. This is the cosmic king, and the fullness of his glory is filling the cosmos, you see. And the word glory in the Hebrew, of course, you've heard me say it before, kavod, means heavy. In other words, you don't take this God lightly.
1: Isaiah isn't. Now thus far God has not spoken. This is all visual.
0: Furthermore, we are not given sense so much of the overarching attributes of God as we are the environment here surrounding God It's the seraphim who are singing, not God thus far, who is speaking. They are describing God. God is not describing himself to them. They have a visual sense of his glory while simultaneously shielding their eyes with their wings
1: from his holiness. Now you get to verse 4. And
0: in verse 4, you and I are informed that the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now you are moving from the sense of the visual to the sense of smell. In other words, this is a multi-sensory experience of worship. Man, the foundations are shaking, and now we have this voice. So now the visual and the verbal are being connected together. The house is filled with smoke. There's this incredible sense of filling, isn't there? In verse 3, the whole earth is full of his, his glory. And in verse 4, You and I are told here the house was filled with smoke. What's interesting to me in the Hebrew, and it comes out of the Sumerian, is that the house literally means the big
1: house, the palace house. The king has died, long live the king. Don't put faith in the temporal, put faith in the eternal
0: one. In this over politicized culture of ours where everybody's
1: got to weigh in on social media God takes our breath away at this point now it's filled with smoke and
0: in verse 5 the first of three significant statements from from Isaiah now are offered you and offered me to think about together and notice, notice what he says. There's an exclamation point in the English language attached to it. Woe is me. This is a psychological phrase. I am lost. Literally, from the Hebrew, I am silenced. He's got, what can you say? God has spoken. He is silenced. Now, what we have to bear in mind here at this point is that good psychology requires good theology. Remove the theology and you're left with a secularized psychology. Interestingly, theology is the study of God. Psychology is the study of the soul. How does secularized psychology study the soul? You need a good theology to develop a good psychology. And Isaiah is doing that for us because he started with the theology of who God is, holy, holy, holy. Now he moves to the psychology of who, what he's about and he says, "Woes me. Now a student of Isaiah at this point knows that in the prior chapter, Isaiah has delivered a series of woes upon the culture. For example, in verse 8, 11, let's say, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Or in verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Or verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So now this prophet has been confronting the culture But now, this prophet is being confronted by the sovereign one over the culture. Woe is me. In some of our translations, he says,
1: I'm undone. Curious with the idea of a psychological disintegration. Why? I'm silenced, which is an amazing statement from a
0: prophet who utilizes words and then goes on to tell us for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and you say well Gary
1: what's the emphasis upon the lips here every time I read this I think of Larry the Cucumber Unclean lips?
0: The prophet utilizes his lips to communicate truth. What he is saying is, I am so vulnerable that even the very vehicle by which I communicate truth is tainted by sin. And when I look at all the vehicles of communication, as he looks at the social media of his culture, so to speak, all he sees is the sense of uncleanness about him and then he adds this for my eyes have seen the king there's irony there he doesn't see Isaiah he sees the king the Lord of hosts now for the second time here in this section Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is not the word Adonai, which is a title for God. It is the word Yahweh, which is the name of God. Interestingly, Yahweh means literally, I am. So that when Jesus, as you might recall, was standing before his religious critics, He would say, before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he was claiming.
1: Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Now when you
0: take small capital, in other words, capital L, small o-r-d, lowercase, Adonai, sovereign, and combine it with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, What you've got, on one hand, is the sense of God's transcendence combined with God's sense of imminence. In other words, he
1: is separate from, yet he is among, he is with us. How do you explain this? It's your God. He's your king. Now it's at this point
0: of self-awareness where Isaiah has said, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Only then, everything's about timing here. Then, one of the seraphim flew to me. Notice he does not go to the throne. The representatives from the throne go to him. This is God's initiative not humanities. This is God's grace. What's in his hand? Having in his hand, you see, a burning coal. Now, you might have been sitting next to the fireplace in the midst of your Christmas activities, and you're pondering the sense of the warmth of the fire. But what you don't want to do, and you understand the value of separateness, you don't want to get burned by the fire, but you do want to get warmed by the fire. But now here comes the burning coal. He's not really going to warm the heart of Isaiah. He's going to burn the lip of Isaiah. Why?
1: Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. We're dealing with temple issues here.
0: Violated by Uzziah. Consecrated by God. Grace. Isaiah doesn't approach the throne. The throne approaches Isaiah. And he touched my mouth. Not the feet. Not the heads. No. The very vehicle of... Through which of which
1: Isaiah was called to minister What is your primary giftedness? If you were to answer the question, "How does God use me most effectively?" Ponder
0: the significance of what happens here, and you're ready for a burning cold to touch
1: that vehicle. And he touched my mouth and said,
0: Behold, this has touched your lips. God's gracious enough to spell it out, to explain it. But then he adds, Your guilt is taken away. It's not enough to talk about guilt. We've got to determine and distinguish between good guilt and bad guilt. I heard about a 13-year-old Girl Scout and how she's so 11,200 boxes of cookies, when she was asked, what's the reason for your success? Quote, you have to look people in the eye and make them feel guilty, unquote.
1: (laughs) Man, keep her away from me. (laughs) This is good guilt. Have you ever understood the connection between grace and guilt? Notice how many people want to embrace grace without dealing with the issue of guilt.
0: We've got to understand and distinguish between good guilt and bad guilt. So now, this grace connects with the guilt. The coal connects with the lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. In my word, Isaiah hasn't even talked about sin. God has not talked about sin. What we have here is a visual on the holiness of God. And here we sense the helplessness of Isaiah. But God in his grace brings grace to guilt. Guilt removed. Your sin atoned for. And when you stare at that word atoned, you ever hear hear of Yom Kippur? Well, the Hebrew word for atone here is kapur. It carries with it the idea of a substitute, of a substitution that has occurred, one in place of another. So now, this is high preparation for the bread and for the cup, the ultimate substitute, Jesus who died for our sins the Holy One dying for the unholy ones. Now how do you deal on one hand with the holiness of God, and on the other hand, the helplessness of humanity? We've got to move from the holy nature of God to second of all, the holy seed of God. You're going to get yourself to verse 13 where it's found, but we've got to march there in a hurry. And so in verse 8, down to verse 13, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, well, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It's the form of a question. It's looking, is he, for
1: a volunteer? Be careful what you volunteer for. Too many missionary passages end at this point. You got to see the entire story. Here I am. Send me. Um, Of
0: course, he hasn't found out what he's being sent to do.
1: Where he's being sent to go. He said, go. There's his commissioning.
0: But now, here's the message. Say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Hey, I want some success. Isaiah is saying, I'm dressed for success. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That's the message. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. After all, Isaiah has been already recognizing the nature of the culture in chapter five with his series of woes. Have you noticed how in your newer testament you will find blessed, blessed, blessed in Matthew chapter five, which is the opposite of woe. And in chapter 23 of Matthew, there's a series of woes being delivered by Jesus, but not to everybody, just to certain ones, the religious teachers of that time period whose lips were unclean because they were not communicating truth. So Jesus delivered woe to those who were communicating in his day falsehood, And he offers blessedness to those who are of his people. And how Isaiah wishes, I'm sure, to offer the blessing instead. He's got to deal with the chaos. And he's saying, but where's the blessing? And then verse 11 kicks in. In the midst of helplessness, here comes hopefulness.
1: So he says, well, how long, O Lord? Give me a time frame. What's the sense of duration here?
0: And he, God, then says, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. Which is what happened when everybody was carted off because of the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, where they were removed from, for 70 years from Judah. But they had an until. And the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in verse 12, removes people far away. But you are Yahweh, you are covenant relational God. You are removing us from the land. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then in verse 13, he deals with the tithe. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. And there's irony there, for the same word burn is utilized once again as it related to the
1: lips of Isaiah. But now he turns to horticulture like a terebinth
0: or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Would you underline this in your Bible? Mark this on your device somehow, some way. The holy seed
1: is its stump. You see the word seed there? The holy seed is its stump.
0: Same Hebrew word which was utilized for offspring. When we began our Christmas series, our Advent series, we began with this statement, this promise delivered by God in the God of Eden in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed
1: slash offspring. and her offspring, slash seed.
0: He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 12, 7, Abram, we studied it the following week. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, or seed, I'll give this land. And now what you find here in this sense of hopelessness is our sense of hopefulness, Because at the very end, you tie together the holiness of God and the hopefulness for humanity that is rooted in the Holy Seed, the second member of the
1: Trinity, Jesus Christ. The Holy Seed is its stump.
0: And now you tie all this together, and you see the hope of the bread and the cup. Because the Holy Seed came into this world to die for the unholy seed of this world, revealing the holy nature of the Godhead to this fallen world, so that in the midst of our helplessness, there is hopefulness. We take this bread, we drink this cup in remembrance of him as the musicians and pastor come forward to share how to prepare for the bread and the cup. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And so, Father, we're thanking you now for who you are. We're thanking you now for what you've revealed. And we see here that the biggest issues of the hour
1: are not the psychological and they are not the political. It is the theological understanding of who you are, what you've done. There's no vacancy on that cosmic throne. Christ lives. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.